Hi, everyone, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens from Point North Media. Tonight, in session 45, we're going to look at the last chapter of book three of The Lord of the Rings, The Palantir, and reach the halfway point of the novel. Though not, I'm very glad to say, quite the halfway point in our exploration of Tolkien's Middle-earth. We're going to hit that point, I think, toward the end of February of 2018, because after we're done with The Lord of the Rings, we're going to look at all six of the Peter Jackson movies, and then we're going to look at The Silmarillion. So there's a lot of discussion waiting for us in the months to come. Still a lot of ground to cover in our exploration of Middle-earth. We have a decent journey ahead of us tonight, particularly because an, explora- uh, an explanation excuse me, of the Palantiri demands a quick tangent, a quick sojourn to the fate of Numenor, to a brief discussion of Feanor, to what became of the White Tree and its many, many descendants. But I'm hoping that I will have time at the end of tonight's session for some general Q&A. If you have questions about the book so far, about book three in particular, about Tolkien in general, then use the questions interface on your Crowdcast panel there and you'll be able to ask questions and hopefully we'll get to a few of them right at the end. We're going to begin with a question in just a moment. But first, first and most importantly... A brief word of sincere congratulations to regular there and back again chat contributor chat stalwart chat hero Jackie who welcomed her new baby into the world earlier this week. Jackie, we are all awfully proud of you and send huge love to you and your new heir, the the Arwen to your Calabrian. The question is, Jackie... Are you going to read her The Hobbit first or The Silmarillion first? This is what we need to know. Congratulations, though, Jackie. We're all just so, so thrilled and so pleased with your your new healthy baby girl and the delivery of that child. Good work. Another quick note before we get into tonight's matters. There won't be a session of There and Back Again next week. I am taking the week off over uh, Christmas, between Christmas and New Year, but there will be some Point North Media original content. That is to say that I am going to read a full, free, unabridged version of Charles Dickens' Immortal A Christmas Carol, which will be available over at pointnorthmedia.com or through the Dear Mr. Potter podcast feed. If you haven't been listening to my dissection, my analysis, the discussions surrounding J.K. Rowling's uh, Harry Potter novel, then head on over and subscribe to Dear Mr. Potter and get all of A Christmas Carol for free. It's going to be really fun. I'm really looking forward to reading that book. I Last night, as of this uh, live session, gave a one-shot lecture on A Christmas Carol, just a, a quick hour-long kind of, of crazy a summation of some of my thoughts on A Christmas Carol, which is, without exaggeration, one of my favorite books in the Western canon. It is just a beautifully realized piece of work. It is so deft, so complex, so wonderful. I'm, I'm so looking forward to reading it for all of you. And it is, of course, the perfect accompaniment to the Christmas season. With all of that said... Let's get into it. Let's welcome Shane and Gildarts Winters and Angela and Hadrian and Variag of Khand and Galadra Becky and Becca and Jackie's here with us tonight. Jackie, you're amazing. Good Lord. You're joining us tonight. That's a wonderful thing. Uh, Nikki and, and Karen is here and Rayla Lynn is here. It is great to have you all with me here for the last session of 2017. Let's get into it. We're going to begin tonight by looking back at a significant event in the last chapter. I absolutely need to pull this slide from the last chapter to kind of work as as some functional foreshadowing for our discussions tonight of Pippin's interactions with the Palantir. This from the last chapter. He raised his hand and spoke slowly in a clear, cold voice. Saruman, your staff is broken. There was a crack and the staff split asunder in Saruman's hand and the head of it fell down at Gandalf's feet. Go, said Gandalf. 
With a cry, Saruman fell back and crawled away. At that moment, a heavy, shining thing came hurtling down from above. It glanced off the iron rail, even as Saruman left it, and passing close to Gandalf's head, it smote the stair on which he stood. The rail rang and snapped. The stair cracked and splintered in glittering sparks. But the ball was unharmed. It rolled on down the steps, a globe of crystal, dark but glowing with a heart of fire. As it bounded away towards a pool, Pippin ran after it and picked it up. The murderous rogue, cried Eomer, but Gandalf was unmoved. No, that thing was not thrown by Saruman, he said, nor even at his bidding, I think. It came from a window far above, a parting shot from Master Wormtongue, I fancy, but ill-aimed. We're going to talk tonight about the sudden and eucatastrophic delivery of the Palantir into the possession of our heroes. A, an event which, which isn't unproblematic, an event which does not, of course, endanger our heroes, but which will, as these things so often do, turn to the good in the end. And I want to begin our discussion of the Palantir by talking a little about Grima Wormtongue. Why does he throw down the one relic in all of Orthanc, which Gandalf wanted? The one thing which Saruman would never, under any circumstances, have willingly yielded up into the care of his, well, hmm, former comrade, his, his rival, the, the new head of his former order, I suppose. Why the Palantir? Well, we're going to speculate that Wormtongue just doesn't know what the Palantir is, that this is just actual chance of chance you call it, that of all the things that he could put his hand on, that looks like the most, you know, meaningful and manly projectile that he could throw down, endeavoring to harm Saruman, endeavoring to harm Gandalf, endeavoring to harm Aragorn, intending to harm someone below him here at the, the feet of the Tower of Orthanc. But it is also possible, I think, that Wormtongue knew, if not exactly what the Palantir was, at least that the Palantir was important, at least that the Palantir was significant. It is possible, and I should acknowledge that this is just rampant speculation here, that Wormtongue took up the Palantir and cast it down because it was so significant, because perhaps previously he had seen Saruman bent over it for long hours, scrying in its inscrutable depths, that he knew that this was a token of Saruman's power, and in his anger, in his frustration, in his wrath, in his fear, he cast it down specifically because it was so powerful. And that isn't just hollow speculation. Because if he did pick up the Palantir because it was important, if he picked up the Palantir because in that moment Wormtongue was furious at Saruman, then this is, I think, another example of evil's self-destructive nature, of its self-destructive impulse, that evil destroys itself through fear and rivalry and competition and hate. Wormtongue here casts out the one thing which Saruman cannot stand at this moment above all others, to lose. He surrenders it effectively, inadvertently, into the hands of our heroes, not through a desire to do good, of course, but through a desire to do, uh, to do evil, to do ill. And so we see, as we so often see, that ill impulse gives rise to good consequence, that evil sows the ground for its own defeat. It sows the ground ready for good, and good rises in its wake. That was just a little intriguing thought that occurred to me as I was preparing tonight's slide. I'd always taken before the simple account that we get, that Wormtongue didn't know what it was. And this is ignorance. This is foolishness. This is stupidity that leads to the Palantir being cast down. But I kind of like the explanation a little better, that perhaps Wormtongue did know what it was. Or if not, it is not, I think, accurate to say that Wormtongue knew what it was, but it may be fair to say that Wormtongue knew that it was at least important. 
And of course, what we see here too is Pippin's immediate action. As it bounded away toward a pool, Pippin ran after it and picked it up. Pippin is immediately stirred to recover this artifact. Not Aomer or one of the Rohirrim present, not even Mary, but Pippin himself. We're going to see the effect that the Palantir has on Pippin, a very familiar effect by this point in the course of the chapter. Let me see here. Uh, yeah, as Jackie says, he manages to wound Saruman greatly here by throwing away the Palantir. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Angela says the Palantir is made of gorilla glass, just like the Harry Potter crystal balls. Yeah, or the screen of your iPhone. Like it, it's a very similar substance. It, it'll it'll withstand most things, though. It is true that, like your iPhone, if you very gently drop the Palantir from a height of six inches onto a padded cushion, it will shatter. That will be enough to completely destroy it. There's a, I don't know, paradoxical, perverse impulse here. In in the uh, in the uh, Palantir. Good. Yes, Adrian says, magic cell phones are definitely more resilient than non-magic ones. Stares at cracked screen. Oh, Adrian, I'm so sorry. That is a terrible thing when it happens. It always feels like such a betrayal when your technology turns against you. Yes. Galadrabecki observes. Galadrabecki, we should say, returning to us after an extended vacation. I think in Germany, did you say Galadrabecki? That's fantastic. Uh, Galadrabecki observes, evil is like a plow. It does violence to the ground, but then makes things grow better in spite of itself. A really great metaphor. That's wonderful. Okay, so that brings us to our discussion of the Palantir. And now we need a quick gloss of the history of these strange and sorcerous scrying stones. The Palantiri were made by Feanor of the Noldor back in Valinor. Many Palantiri were made. Lots and lots of Palantiri were apparently made. The number is not known, but they were apparently numerous. And why wouldn't they be? Why wouldn't they be as useful as telephones or as useful as, you know, Skype? They're, they're great inventions. So, you know, good job, Feanor. Feanor may be familiar to you as, of course, he who created the Silmarils. He's a pretty significant craftsperson in the history of the Silmarillion, in the history of Tolkien's Legendarium. Uh, Elendil took seven of the, of the Palantiri in his flight to Middle-earth, more on that later, and in time they were distributed to seven different locations through Middle-earth, four in Gondor, three in Arnor, as we get described to us in this chapter. Feanor was the son of Finwë, who was the High King of the Noldor. He is the one who led the uh, led the Noldor people out of Middle Earth, all the way across the sea in the first place. So we're right back at the very depths of the the, the Legendarium here. We're right back at, at the the foundation stones of of the Silmarillion here. So with all of that said, let's get into our discussion of uh, Chapter Eleven, and we begin, of course, with Mary asking questions. Are we riding far tonight, Gandalf? asked Mary after a while. I don't know how you feel with small ragtag dangling behind you, but the ragtag is tired and will be glad to stop dangling and lie down. So you heard that, said Gandalf. Don't let it rankle. Be thankful no longer words were aimed at you. He had his eyes on you. If it is any comfort to your pride, I should say that at the moment you and Pippin are more in his thoughts than the rest of us. Who you are, how you came there and why, what you know, whether you were captured, and if so, how you escaped when all the orcs perished. It is with those little riddles that the great mind of Saruman is troubled. A sneer from him, Meriadoc, is a compliment if you feel honoured by his concern. Thank you, said Mary, but it is a greater honour to dangle at your tail, Gandalf. For one thing, in that position, one has a chance of putting a question a second time. Are we riding far tonight? Gandalf laughed. A most unquenchable hobbit. All wizards should have a hobbit or two in their care to teach them the meaning of the word and to correct them. I beg your pardon, but I have given thought even to these simple matters. We will ride for a few hours, gently, until we come to the end of the valley. Tomorrow we must ride faster. 
When we came, we meant to go straight from Isengard back to the king's house at Edoras over the plains, a ride of some days. But we have taken thought and changed the plan. Messengers have gone ahead to Helm's Deep to warn them that the king is returning tomorrow. He will ride from there with many men to Dunharrow by paths among the hills. From now on, no more than two or three together are to go openly over the land, by day or night, where it can be avoided. So we get the sense already that the eye of Barad-dûr is searching for them, that now, aware of what has happened, even dimly aware of what has happened at Isengard, Sauron will be searching for proof of the force that is moving against him. So we're not going to ride back across the plain to Edoras. Instead, we're going to ride directly back to Helm's Deep, and then we're going to go up through the hills. We will prove more difficult for Sauron to scry if we move quietly, if we move in groups of two or three, rather than marching as a host across the plains of Rohan. And of course, why shouldn't we move in groups of two or three rather than marching as a host across the plains of Rohan? Because Rohan, well, from the west at least, is now secured. Isengard is no longer a military threat against the Rohirrim. Against... Oh my goodness, that was a very dramatic glass break here as I'm recording the live show. That was inelegant. Don't worry about a thing. Everything is okay. Um, So (laughs) we're going to uh, move quietly through the hills and we're not going to attract the gaze, the baleful gaze of Sauron there at Barad-dûr. And here too we see some of this hobbitry. Here too we see some of this wonderful interplay, this exchange between Merry and Gandalf. We're back now. We've, We've... come back from the elevated language of of the height of the conflict against Saruman, we've pulled all the way back now into a much more naturalistic, much more familiar, much more Shirish mode, a much more Shirish register. Here, Mary is outright teasing Gandalf. Gandalf is is giving him the... I just realized that I moved on to the next slide there during that little catastrophe. So you heard that. Don't let it rankle. Be thankful. No longer words were aimed at you. He's responding to Mary's snide remark about Saruman's snide remark. I don't know how you feel with a small ragtag dangling behind you, but the ragtag is tired and will be glad to stop dangling and lie down. This is throwing Saruman's words back at him in effect. So Gandalf tends to his concern. Oh, don't worry about that. Everything's fine. You know, he's still thinking about you. His his focus is on you. His attention is on you, if that is a compliment to your pride. And Mary says, well, actually, I'm fine. It's a greater honor to dangle at your tail, Gandalf. For one thing, in that position, one has a chance of putting a question a second time. Are we riding far tonight? I was being snide before. I was being ironic before. But my question was, are we riding far? Because I'm very tired. I'm very exhausted after the Battle of Orthanc and the Battle of, of Isengard. And then we get the actual response. Yes, we're going to ride easily today, then we're going to rest, then we're going to ride like hell is after us, because hell is after us, or actually not even after us, but before us and looking for us. This is a bad time right now to be out on the open plain. Glastastrophe, says Gildarts Winters. That was exciting. Thank you, Angela. I appreciate that. And old Toby says, now with sound effects. Becca's concerned that I broke more of the crystal. I did not break more of the crystal. That was just a regular glass. Don't worry about a thing. Everything is just fine. Let's move on to our second slide. That evening, Merry and Pippin compare notes. And this is where we start to see the shadow fall over Pippin. You had the luck, Merry, said Pippin softly after a pause. You were riding with Gandalf. Well, what of it? Did you get any news, any any information out of him? Yes, a good deal, more than usual. But you heard it all or most of it. You were close by and we were talking no secrets. But you can go with him tomorrow if you think you can get more out of him. And if he'll have you. Can I? Good. But he's close. Isn't he not changed at all? Oh, yes, he is, said Mary, waking up a little and beginning to wonder what was bothering his companion. He has grown or something. He can be both kinder and more alarming, merrier and more solemn than before, I think. He has changed. 
but we have not had a chance to see how much yet. But think of the last part of that business with Saruman. Remember Saruman was once Gandalf's superior, head of the council, whatever that may be exactly. He was Saruman the White. Gandalf is the White now. Saruman came when he was told, and his rod was taken, and then he was just told to go, and he went. Well, if Gandalf has changed at all, then he's closer than ever, that's all, Pippin argued. That glass ball now, he seemed mighty pleased with it. He knows or guesses something about it, but does he tell us what? No, not a word. Yet I picked it up, and I saved it from rolling into a pool. Here, I'll take that, my lad. That's all. I wonder what it is. It felt so very heavy. Pippin's voice fell very low as if he was talking to himself. Hello, said Mary. So that's what's bothering you. Now, Pippin, my lad, don't forget Gildor's saying, the one Sam used to quote, Do not meddle in the affairs of wizards, for they are subtle and quick to anger. But our whole life for months has been one long meddling in the affairs of wizards, said Pippin. I should like a bit of information as well as danger. I should like a look at that ball. Go to sleep, said Mary. You'll get information enough sooner or later. My dear Pippin, no took ever beat a brandybuck for inquisitiveness. But is this the time, I ask you? All right. What's the harm of my telling you what I should like? A look at that stone. I know I can't have it with old Gandalf sitting on it like a hen on an egg, but it doesn't help much to get no more from you than a you-can't-have-it-so-go-to-sleep. Is this at all familiar? Is this sounding at all like something we have heard before? The influence of the Palantir over Pippin is already evident. This is not the Pippin, I think it's pretty fair to say. It's pretty pretty uh, comprehensive to say that we have seen previously in this book. This is not a familiar version of Pippin's character. This is something darker. This is something certainly more focused, much, much more purposeful. And the focal point of that purpose? The Palantir. And we see here some of that same justification that we get in the presence of another artifact of evil, another thing that has been corrupted by Sauron's influence, just to kind of spoil our reveal of the Palantir here a little bit. We've seen this kind of thing before. This is the influence of the ring. Look at what Pippin says. That glass ball now, he seemed mighty pleased with it. He knows or guesses something about it, but does he tell us what? No, not a word. Yet I picked it up and I saved it from rolling into a pool. I took it. It should be mine. I have every right to know. I have a right to look into the stone. I have a right to examine it. It's, in a sense, my present. It's, in a sense, my precious. Pippin is already here under the sway of something that casts a dark shadow in exactly the way that the ring does. We've seen this kind of conversation many times now. We've seen this from Galadriel, and we've seen it from Boromir, and we've seen it from Frodo himself. We've seen it from many, many characters through the pages of The Lord of the Rings, but we haven't seen it with connection to the Palantir before, of course. Of course we haven't seen it with connection to the Palantir. The Palantir was literally just hurled into the narrative at the end of the last chapter. But this is a very similar kind of influence in that it is forcing Pippin to rationalized. It is forcing Pippin to question. It is forcing Pippin to fear a, a discord between himself and Gandalf. Gandalf now is apparently no longer trustworthy. Something else is going on. Uh, yet I picked it up and I saved it from rolling into a pool. Here, I'll take that, my lad. That's all. I wonder what it is. It felt so very heavy. Pippin's voice fell very low as if he was talking to himself. Is it the Palantir that is having this influence over Pippin? Is it the nature of the Palantir, the function of the Palantir, the purpose of the Palantir? Well, we'll get more explicitly into that in the next couple of slides. But yes, it does feel as though there's something exerting a dark influence here over uh, over our Pippin. Nikki says, so this is the negative pull because the user was Saruman who connected with Sauron, not because the Palantir was evil? 
Well, okay, so Hadrian is giving us a little a little uh, Silmarillion insight in his reply to that. My headcanon is that Feanor put his creepiness slash entitlement into his work like Sauron put his own evil. Um, it is possible. Feanor is a fascinating and problematic character in the history of the Silmarillion, and it is possible that the Palantiri were never entirely pure. But this Palantir in particular has fallen under Sauron's influence. I think it is very much like that, uh, like the relationship of the ring to its bearer, or not even to its bearer, but the ring to anyone of power nearby. Is the Palantir, as we've speculated about the ring, trying to find a new owner? Well, no, probably not. And I find this I find this fascinating. We've talked a little about the influence of the ring before, and we've, we've speculated about the degree to which the ring is self-aware. Is the ring aware of what is happening to us, uh, to it? Can the ring plan? Does the ring have strategy? Or is the ring merely reactive? Is the ring merely extending these tendrils of corruption out into the world and plays no greater part than that? Does it simply come to Frodo in moments of weakness, urging him to use it, urging him to reveal himself to the Nazgul, to reveal himself to Sauron? Or is it conscious? Is it thinking? Is it in some way sapient? Is it some way, is it in some way capable of formulating a strategy? Well, if we take the Palantir's influence to be like that of the ring, if we take this, this fascination from Pippin, if we take this temptation to explore the Palantir, to possess the Palantir, to gaze into its depths, if we take that as being very similar, in fact, to the operation of the ring, then we're forced to conclude that the ring is probably less sapient than we are inclined to believe. That is, the ring is less inclined to strategy. This corruptive process that we've witnessed so many times before is simply a consequence of the shadow that has fallen over it, the shadow that has consumed it itself. We're going to put a very significant pin in this because, of course, right after this discussion, when we come back at the beginning of January 2018, the week after next, we're going to move into book four and we're going to get plenty of opportunity to talk about the ring. But it is possible, I think, to at least bear this Palantir in mind as a potential data point when we are speculating about the ring itself and about its influence. So we'll talk a little, too, about Mary's verdict on Gandalf here. Um, yeah, and then we'll get to Do Not Meddle in the Affairs of Wizards, because, of course, that is a wonderful thing. Look at what Mary says about Gandalf. He has grown or something. He can be both kinder and more alarming, merrier and more solemn than before, I think. And you will note, by the way, that Gandalf certainly seems to laugh more freely than he did previously. He's less grumpy wizard, right? When, when Mary was teasing him, or at least being wry on the previous page, he laughs in response to that, and it seems to be a laugh of genuine mirth and appreciation. He is lightened by his experience, by his, his return from death, I suppose. He is merrier than he was before, but yes, also more solemn. He has changed, but we have not had a chance to see how much yet. But think of the last part of that business with Saruman, and I love here how much attention Mary was paying, and how smart and perceptive Mary is. Remember, Saruman was once Gandalf's superior, head of the council, whatever that may be exactly. He was Saruman the White. Gandalf is the White now. Saruman came when he was told and his rod was taken, and then he was just told to go and he went. Remember that, that those are the two moments in which Gandalf actually breaks from his his observation of what is happening. These are moments where we actually get Gandalf commanding Saruman. 
at, at Orthanc. He commands Saruman to come back to the rail, and Saruman obeys. Then he commands Saruman to go, and Saruman obeys. The rest of it is is, you know, he's in the indicative mode. He's simply giving an account of things that are happening. You have no color. You are cast out from the council. Your staff is broken. These are simply facts that I, Gandalf, am observing and reporting to you, Saruman. And yes, it does seem that as I report these things, they become true somehow, but he is not commanding. He does not actively break Saruman's staff as much as he observes that Saruman's staff is broken by Saruman's action, by Saruman's betrayal here. And Merry picks up on all of that. He sees the two moments when Gandalf actually does dominate Saruman's will. He actually does, I mean, not cast a spell in the traditional fantasy sense, but but works magic in the Tolkienian sense, certainly. He dominates Saruman right there. He commands and Saruman obeys evidently in the first instance against his will, and we may well infer in the second instance against his will too. Gandalf has been transformed by this. But Pippin isn't really asking about Gandalf. Pippin's really asking about the Palantir. He's really asking about the glass ball. So then we get our uh, our repetition of the advice that Gildor gave to uh, Frodo, specifically, do not meddle in the affairs of wizards. This advice that Sam has apparently repeated a hundred times over in the months since they met with Gildor back in the Shire. I just wanted to give you this uh, reference so that you can remember it. This is from The Fellowship of the Ring, Book 1, Chapter 3, The Meeting with Gildor. Gildor was silent for a moment. I do not like this news, he said at last, that Gandalf should be late does not bode well. But it is said, do not meddle in the affairs of wizards, for they are subtle and quick to anger. The choice is yours, to go or wait. And it is also said, answered Frodo, go not to the elves for counsel, for they will say both no and yes. So this is our first instance of do not meddle in the affairs of wizards. Mary calls it back here, and then, of course, we get the response from Pippin. Everything we've been doing has been the affairs of wizards. You expect me not to meddle when I've been dragged out of my comfortable hobbit hole, dragged across to Buckland, dragged to Bree, dragged to Rivendell, dragged to Carathras, through the mines of Moria, to Lothlorien, and into Fangorn, taken by orcs. All of this is the affairs of wizards. This isn't hobbit fair. This isn't the, the business of two hobbits from the Shire. This is the affairs of wizards. I have a right to know what is happening. And then, of course, Gandalf will return to this concept in just a couple of slides time. Um... Yes, Rayla Lynn saying, do not meddle in the affairs of wizards for they are subtle and quick to anger. Samwise Gamgee providing wisdom even when he is gone. Yes, absolutely. And remembered fondly, I'm sure. Remembered very, very fondly. Um, Yes. Oh, this is great. <laughs> Lily says, Wizard Dad finally quit that job he hated and now he's more involved. Yeah, he's really kind of, he, he's really turning into, into a stand-up Wizard Dad now. He was kind of a deadbeat Wizard Dad for a while. You know how he would just leave the Shire for years at a time and the Hobbits were probably going to be fine, but he didn't really check in. Then he'd come back with gifts, a lot of fireworks, you know, candy from the duty-free in the airport, that kind of thing. But yes, I mean, now he's present all the time. Now he's really involved in the lives of his children? Everyone who is his children? I don't know. Is that everyone on Middle-earth? It may well be. Just everyone on Middle-earth is, is Wizard Dad's kid at this point. Good. Good. Yes, and Angela observes, Mary is very smart and capable. He both listens and remembers. This is very good. Oh, this is good, too. Rayla Lynn says, I wonder if Pippin's gentle hobbit entitlement is in play here. I don't think this would work on Sam or happen to Sam in the same circumstances. Ha. Ah, I think you're right. Um, is it a case of gentle hobbit entitlement? Yes, kind of, I would argue. 
Um, in that, one of the things that protects Sam is his utter humility. It is not that he is aware of his place in the world, that he has no aspiration, that he has no ambition, that he has no you know personal agency or anything like that. It's that he himself is small. And power corrupts power. Dark power in particular corrupts power. The ring works on the powerful. That is why it is such a temptation to Galadriel. That is why it works so beautifully on Boromir. And that's a fact that I think is oftentimes overlooked. You know, we spend a little bit of time talking about this at Parth Gallon, uh, back before the, or, or as the fellowship was sundering, I suppose. Um, what attracts Boromir to the ring is Boromir's inherent power. Remember, he gets that speech. Aragorn could use the ring and, and lead the armies into, into battle against Sauron and be victorious. And if not Aragorn, then hey, why not Boromir? Maybe Boromir? Maybe Boromir could wield the ring. That's pretty cool. I'm great. I'm awesome. I could do that thing. I have the power to withstand the temptation. So yes, I think that power corrupts power. I think that to be great, even in the hobbitish frame, right, just to be a gentle hobbit, just to have some natural authority, just to expect a little courtesy and a little a little response from people around you, I think that is a kind of power. So I don't think that it is his I don't think that it his it is his hierarchical entitlement that gets Pippin in trouble here so much as it is the fact that he has a certain amount of power. He has a certain amount of status. He has a certain amount of, of class. And of course, he's now coming out of the adventure with, with Treebeard back in Fangorn Forest and the assault on Isengard himself. He is now taller than he used to be. He has now drunk deep of that, that Entish draft and he is greater for it. So there is now more greatness for the Palantir to work upon, for the, the influence upon the Palantir, if you want to split that hair very finely, for the influence upon the Palantir to work upon than there was before. Would this have worked on Pippin before? Well, I mean, <laughs> we do kind of have a, a comparable beat from Pippin earlier in the story, of course. It's not that he is... It's not that he is seduced by the desire for power, it's not that he is whispered to by dark forces, either explicitly or implicitly, but he does have that Tookish curiosity. He does get in trouble. This is the second time, in fact, that a stone is going to get Pippin into trouble. Remember back in Moria, the casting of the stone into the well that rouses the orcs, that rouses the Balrog, that leads to everything that has happened in the, in the pages of the Two Towers directly? I mean, most of what happened at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring too. All of that, in a sense, was Pippin's fault. And we can't judge Pippin too harshly because of eucatastrophe, because of, of the way in which these negative things, these, these necessities are, are required in order to turn to good effect and good purpose. But Pippin, yeah, he has a habit of getting into trouble with things like this. This is the, the fool of a took moment, in fact. Um, let me see. Galadrabeki says, uh, I think power corrupts pride rather than power. Sam's humility is a result of his lower status, but it protects him against pride, which makes him less susceptible to the ring. Um, yes. Okay. Actually, yes. Fair. You're right. I think it's not the, uh, even then, I don't think it's necessarily pride, right? Because pride is not an inherently negative thing. Pride is not a vice. Undue pride, excessive pride is a vice. But pride is a virtue. Aragorn is proud and Legolas is proud and Boromir was proud in a really good way until he was proud in a really bad way. I do think that that pride and power are absolutely connected. They are connected to this nebulous Tolkienian concept of, of stature, of greatness, right? That Power in the broadest possible sense, greatness in the possible in the broadest possible sense, will be corrupted eventually. And the greater you are, 
the more swiftly you will be corrupted and the more completely you will be corrupted. That is just the cycle of life here in Middle Earth. That is just how things work. The great will always fall to temptation, but the small won't. And I do wonder to what degree Pippin's increased stature, his, his increased stature relative to Sam, even from the beginning of the book, of course, his kind of... Uh, his silver spoon gentle hobbit existence up until that point does kind of make him of greater stature than Sam. And now his drinking of the Entish draft, his experiences in Fangorn, his experiences with the orcs, his experiences at Isengard, that these things too have, have literally increased him in stature, right? He is literally bigger than he was before. He's literally greater than he was before. Yeah. Seastar says rather adorably, uh, my brother used to call me fool of a took when I did things he considered unwise. I like that a lot, actually. I like that a lot. It's a, it's a very good, just general purpose kind of curse and exclamation. Just fool of a took. It's very good, yes. Um, excellent, excellent. Uh, okay, let's uh, keep moving on because I'm taking, as always, far longer than I expected to, moving through these relatively simple slides. Let's get to Pippin taking the Palantir. Hardly breathing, Pippin crept nearer foot by foot. At last, he knelt down. Then he put his hands out stealthily and slowly lifted the lump up. It did not seem quite so heavy as he had expected. Only some bundle of oddments, perhaps, after all, he thought with a strange sense of relief, but he did not put the bundle down again. He stood for a moment, clasping it. Then an idea came into his mind. He tiptoed away, found a large stone, and came back. Quickly now, he drew off the cloth, wrapped the stone in it, and kneeling down, laid it back by the wizard's hand. Then at last he looked at the thing he had uncovered. There it was, a smooth globe of crystal, now dark and dead, lying bare before his knees. Pippin lifted it, covered it hurriedly in his own cloak, and half turned to go back to his bed. At that moment, Gandalf moved in his sleep and muttered some words. They seemed to be in a strange tongue. His hand groped out and clasped the wrapped stone. Then he sighed and did not move again. You idiotic fool, Pippin muttered to himself. You're going to get yourself into frightful trouble. Put it back quick. But he found now that his knees quaked. He did not dare go near enough to the wizard to reach the bundle. I'll never get it back now without waking him, he thought, not till I'm a bit calmer, so I may as well have a look first, not just here, though. He stole away and sat down on a green hillock not far from his bed. The moon looked in over the edge of the dell. Pippin sat with his knees drawn up and the ball between them. He bent low over it, looking like a greedy child stooping over a bowl of food in a corner away from others. He drew his cloak aside and gazed at it. The air seemed still and tense about him. At first the globe was dark, black as jet, with the moonlight gleaming on its surface. Then there came a faint glow and stir in the heart of it, and it held his eyes so that now he could not look away. Soon all the inside seemed on fire. The ball was spinning, or the lights within were revolving. Suddenly the lights went out. He gave a gasp and struggled, but he remained bent, clasping the ball with both hands. Closer and closer he bent and then became rigid. His lips moved soundlessly for a while. Then with a strangled cry he fell back and lay still. The cry was piercing. The guards leapt down from the banks. All the camp was soon astir. Nikki says in the Crowdcast chat here, the secrecy is an immediate dark omen. Yes, indeed. The desire to keep this secret, I mean, even before he starts to rationalize consciously and verbally to himself, the desire to keep it secret, the desire to be explicitly deceitful, speaks to Pippin's underlying attempt to rationalize this behavior, right? He knows evidently that in fact, despite his protestations, he does not have a right to look into the Palantir. This is not just about getting in trouble. He knows that this is not for him. That is why he is being deceitful. If he had a right, he would stroll over while Gandalf was sleeping, pick up the Palantir, look into it right there. Oh, I have a right to do this, Gandalf. Actually, I am a gentle hobbit. I am Peregrine Took. You must, you know, at least respect that. You must at least respect my agency. I have a right 
to do this. But he knows that he doesn't, which is why he is practicing deceit even before the Palantir starts working on him, even before this influence starts compelling him in exactly the same way that the ring does. Look at this rationalization. You idiotic fool, you're going to get yourself in frightful trouble. Put it back quick. This is raw Pippin, right? This is Pippin feeling as Frodo feels when he ought not to put on the ring. He ought to put it away. Forget about it. Don't use it. Don't think about it. Don't look at it. Just just cast the ring from your mind. Don't go near the Palantir. What are you doing? This is insane. But he found now that his knees quaked. He did not dare go near enough to the wizard to reach the bundle. I'll never get it back now without waking him, he thought. Not till I'm a bit calmer. So I may as well have a look first. Not just here, though. Well, yes, okay, I should return it, but I can't return it now. I've got to be a little bit calmer. So I'll just have a look, and then when I've calmed down, I'll return it. This is classic ring rationalization. Gandalf telling Frodo not to use the ring, but I'm still in the Shire and Bilbo used the ring plenty of times, says Frodo, accounting for his sudden desire, his his alien desire to use the ring. Now Pippin is giving us exactly that kind of narrative about the Palantir itself. Then we get, of course, the account of the Palantir. Oh, I should note too, the fact that the Palantir, uh, then he put his hands out stealthily and slowly lifted the lump up. It did not seem quite so heavy as he had expected. Hey, is there another item in this book, another artifact in this book that is oddly heavy sometimes? Again, another connection here between the Palantir and the ring. It weighs in an interesting fashion. Yeah. Uh, Gildarts Winter says, uh, this is when you know you're going to the dark side, when you start asking yourself questions and making weak justifications to yourself. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Good. Good. Um, let me see here. Oh, Jenna's joining us. Jenna's joining us, but hasn't read the uh, hasn't read the chapter. Don't worry, you'll 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 catch right up. It's all fine. Don't worry. Um, yes, and Varric of Khan is calling out the POV craft by Tolkien with Pippin's gaze into the Palantir. Yes, absolutely right. The uh, the way that we manage that transition. Pippin sat with his knees drawn up in the ball between them. So we get the account of Pippin. Right, he bent low over it, looking like a greedy child stooping over a bowl of food in a corner far away from others. He drew his cloak aside and gazed at it. The air seemed still and tense about him. And then we get the transition. At first the globe was dark, black as jet, with the moonlight gleaming on its surface. Then there came a faint glow and stir in the heart of it. Now we're deep in Pippin's POV. Now we're getting the experience. He gave a gasp and struggled, but he remained bent, clasping the ball with both hands. And then he cries out. And ultimately, of course, is called upon to explain himself. Pippin shut his eyes and shivered, but said nothing. They all stared at him in silence, except Mary, who turned away. But Gandalf's face was still hard. Speak, he said. In a low, hesitating voice, Pippin began again, and slowly his words grew clearer and stronger. I saw a dark sky and tall battlements, he said, and tiny stars. It seemed very far away and long ago, yet hard and clear. Then the stars went in and out. They were cut off by things with wings. Very big, I think, really, but in the glass they looked like bats wheeling around the tower. I thought there were nine of them. One began to fly straight toward me, getting bigger and bigger. It had a horrible... No, no, I can't say... I tried to get away because I thought it would fly out, but when it had covered all the globe, it disappeared. Then he came. He did not speak so I could hear words. He just looked, and I understood. So you've come back. What have you neglected to, why have you neglected to report for so long? I did not answer. He said, who are you? I still did not answer, but it hurt me horribly, and he pressed me. So I said, a hobbit. Then suddenly he seemed to see me, and he laughed at me. It was cruel. It was like being stabbed with knives. I struggled, but he said, Wait a moment. We shall meet again soon. Tell Saruman that that this dainty is not for him. I will send for it at once. Do you understand? Say just that. Then he gloated over me. I felt I was falling to pieces. No, no, I can't say any more. I don't remember anything else. Look at me, said Gandalf. Pippin looked up straight into his eyes. 
The wizard held his gaze for a moment in silence. Then his face grew gentler and the shadow of a smile appeared. He laid his hand softly on Pippin's head. All right, he said. Speak no more. You have taken no harm. There is no lie in your eyes as I feared, but he did not speak long with you. A fool, but an honest fool you remain, Peregrine took. Wiser ones might have done worse in such a pass, but mark this. You have been saved, and all your friends too, mainly by good fortune, as it is called. You cannot count on it a second time. If he had questioned you then and there, almost certainly you would have told all that you know to the ruin of us all. But he was too eager. He did not want information only. He wanted you, quickly, so he could deal with you in the dark tower, slowly. Don't shudder. If you will meddle in, the, meddle in the affairs of wizards, you must be prepared to think of such things. But come, I forgive you. Be comforted. Things have not turned out as evilly as they might. Good fortune, as it is called. Chance, if chance you call it. Here we get the restoration of Pippin. He's okay. He's come through an ordeal. He's come through a trial. He has witnessed these these terrible shapes, these winged shapes flying around the tower. The tower here, evidently Barador. The winged shapes, evidently the Nazgul, now taken flight upon their mounts. And of course, one of them is flying straight towards him, which we will see in just a moment. But here we get the voice of Sauron in a really interesting way. Sauron isn't just isn't just aware of Pippin's presence. He is aware of Pippin's presence and the context of Sauron to a certain degree, but he clearly doesn't recognize the fact that that Sauron is uh, that Saruman, excuse me, has been overthrown, or at least that the Palantir has been taken from him. Tell Saruman that this dainty is not for him. I will send for it at once. Do you understand? Say just that. That this is a, a restoration. Why believing that Saruman is still in power, believing that Pippin can go to Saruman and say, um, Talk to the boss. Uh, the boss says, we've got a recall on these Palantiris, so um, sorry, someone's going to drop by. There's going to be like a UPS guy here at 11 to 3. He's going to pick it up and take it back to Barador. That's going to be okay, right? He believes that Pippin can have something resembling that conversation with Saruman and that Saruman will be, what, powerless? To what degree was Saruman using this Palantir to, to peer into Mordor? To what degree did the Palantir corrupt him himself? To what degree is the Palantir evil separate? Or, or okay, evil might be stretching things a little bit, but to what degree is the Palantir corruptive separate from the power of Sauron? Well, we'll again talk about that as we move forward. Um, that's what it says. He's not sniffing yet. Not truly, not truly evil until you start sniffing. Fair, absolutely fair. Um, let me catch up with the crowdcast chat here. Um, here it is. As I try and catch up with the crowdcast chat, which is being a little difficult here. Yeah, okay, good. Uh, Nikki says, wasn't one of the Nazgul shot down though, or did they already replace the winged beast? Um, I don't think that that Legolas took out the mount of the Nazgul permanently, and certainly the 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 beasts, by all accounts, can be revived or replaced or something, but yes, I, I'm not sure that I, I interpreted uh, Legolas's shot over the Anduin there to be to be a permanent solution to the Nazgul problem as much as it was a temporary solution to the Nazgul problem, but yes, yes, that's interesting. Um, let me see. Pippin's naivety and innocence have saved him, says Nikki. Possibly some hobbit luck, too, and Seastar's calling out there, good fortune, as it is called. Yes, um, where are we? A fool but an honest fool you remain, Peregrine took. Wiser ones might have done worse in such a pass. This could have been so much worse if you were just, you know, smarter. 
at least now you're still honest. And we see here Gandalf's ability to determine that honesty too. He peers into Pippin's eyes and is satisfied that Pippin has in fact told him the whole story, or at least... If not the whole story, there are a couple things that he can't tell. It had a horrible no, no, I can't say. I felt I was falling to pieces. No, no, I can't say anymore. I don't remember anything else. I can't say anymore and I don't remember anything else. Two very different thoughts there. But Gandalf is clearly satisfied that Pippin has told him everything of import. And it may well be the case that Gandalf can pluck forth those thoughts that he hasn't uh, that he hasn't shared there. Gandalf the Comforter, says Varig of Kant. I love that beat so much. That... Uh, the wizard held his gaze for a moment in silence, then his face grew gentler and the shadow of a smile appeared. He laid his hand softly on Pippin's head. That moment of touch, that almost kingly blessing, that 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 extension of condescension, that extension of pity here from Gandalf is genuinely beautiful. Again, we didn't see anything like this back in Moria, right? I mean, admittedly, we didn't have the opportunity to see anything like this back in Moria, but this does seem to be a wiser Gandalf, a Gandalf that is more in every dimension than he was before. Yes. A fool but an honest fool, quotes Heroes and Bards. I love this part. I love this part too. And Lily's saying, Pippin is basically a curious child. He just runs around trying things. That is certainly one valid interpretation. And I haven't really given uh, given time to that interpretation here because I myself, I'm, I'm kind of convinced by the, the fell influence of the Palantir over Pippin. But yes, it is also possible that, that Pippin is just irrepressible in that Turkish way. You know, he is is about adventure and it is possible that as his stature has grown, his desire for adventure has grown in commensurate fashion. That's certainly possible. It may be that there is no influence from the Palantir over Pippin. It may be that this is, huh, I guess this is 100% natural Pippin, right? That would be one way of looking at it, is that this is just who he is. And perhaps presented with the same circumstances, he would have behaved in exactly the same way back in Moria or back at Rivendell or back in the Shire even. If he'd been presented with the Palantir, he might have just wanted to look at the pretty bauble and this rationalization may be pure Pippin rather than the influence of the Palantir. But it does feel like the Palantir to me, in part because it feels so much like the ring, because this rationalization, this 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 tendency to talk aloud, this tendency to monologue specifically, right? This feels like the ring's influence. And thus, I wonder about the corruption that is laid upon the Palantir. Yeah. Uh, let me see here. So uh, Lynn says, so Sauron thinks Saruman made Pippin look into the Palantir. Sauron clearly thinks that Pippin has looked into the Palantir while it is still in the possession of Saruman. We can't say more than that, but it is potentially interesting, right? That, oh, a hobbit. Well, tell Saruman that I'm taking back his Palantir. Well, of course Saruman would have a hobbit. Of course Saruman consorts with hobbits. This may be another beat in this this slow burn backstory, this this kind of slow burn secondary plot that we're getting about trouble in the Shire and the connections between Isengard and the Shire. There may be another another little piece of evidence there too. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, Hadrian says, Sauron thought Pippin was so insignificant he didn't even bother to corrupt him. Well, let's let's note what Gandalf says here. Um, he was too eager. He did not want information only. He wanted you quickly so that he could deal with you in the Dark Tower slowly. It's not the case that Sauron was sending forth the Nazgul to come and get the Palantir and leave Pippin relatively unscathed. Oh, a hobbit? Who even has time? The paperwork when you're dealing with hobbits? It's just not worth it. You can't even get any good torturing done on a hobbit. This is, no, 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 no. Just leave the hobbit there. It'll be fine. No, he's coming for Pippin too. He wants Pippin too, even believing that Pippin is potentially, in Saruman's company, if not in Saruman's service, right? That's about as far, I think, as we can stretch that. Yeah. Good. Okay. 
Yeah, Nikki's saying, Pippin did toss that rock into the well in Moria, didn't he? Yep, yep, that's our Pippin. Good. Good. Okay. And an interesting point there. Rayla Lynn says, I wonder if Saruman made his servants use the Palantir. Hey, this is another potential piece of evidence supporting the idea that Wormtongue didn't accidentally throw the Palantir out of Orthanc to the feet of Gandalf. Perhaps believing that his master had been overthrown, listening in on the conversation and seeing even Saruman's staff shatter, Wormtongue believes now he can be free of the Palantir. Perhaps he himself was forced to gaze into the Palantir by Saruman. Perhaps that was part of the corruptive process that, that turned Wormtongue, turned Grima Wormtongue into what he is today. Okay, we must keep um, we must uh, keep going here. Uh, we're getting a. Um, we're getting the uh, the Lord of the Rings Wikia says that Tolkien said the fell beasts are not pterodactylic. Uh, says C-Star. That is a link to a page that I'm definitely not going to open right now, but I will definitely read after this live session is over. I definitely want to find out exactly what Tolkien had to say about those beasts. I'm not sure that I've ever re- read that uh, read that, uh, read that thing. Good, good, okay. Oh, this is interesting too. Uh, R. Palmer says, wait, I thought the dainty Sauron was referring to was the ring. Is, it, is that not what he's talking about? Sauron knows that a hobbit is in possession of the one ring, right? He does, that's true. Um, but the key here is is found, I think, in a very close reading of the text. Tell Saruman that this dainty is not for him. It's not the the and also I can't quite believe that Sauron would trivialize the One Ring by calling it a dainty. Right? There's something. Mm, there's something evilly whimsical about that. This this trivial thing. This this bauble. This trinket. This dainty. This this insignificant speck of of magical artifactory that you're you're holding in your hands now. I don't think that he would refer to the One Ring as a dainty under any circumstances. And uh, clearly, I think the this here tells Saruman that this dainty is not for him. The only way that that would work would be if Sauron were already in possession of the One Ring, right? If he were holding it up to the camera, if he were holding it up to this this Skype call that he's having with Pippin, tell Saruman that this little beauty, this, uh-uh-uh, not for him, not the way this works, it's mine now. Yeah, that I think would be the only other interpretation that would work. But yes, good. Good. Um, and this is very good. Yes. Sauron's emissary says R. Palmer refer to the One Ring as the least of rings when they meet with the dwarves of Erebor. They absolutely do, but I think that that is in an attempt to downplay the ring's importance in order to, to convince the dwarves to ally themselves with more. Oh, that old thing, that, that's, look, it's not even important. We can give you dwarven rings. You know how cool dwarven rings are? They'll generate a horde for you. They'll give you all kinds of power. You're going to be amazing. I think that is deliberately the emissary of Sauron downplaying the influence of the One Ring there to the dwarves specifically. But yeah, I mean, a possible interpretation there. I like that a lot. Yes. Good. Good. All right. Let's get to uh, our next slide here. This is the explaining of himself. And now something must be done with the Palantir. With that, Gandalf returned to the others who were still standing by the Orthanc stone in troubled thought. Peril comes in the night when least expected, he said. We have had a narrow escape. How is the Hobbit, Pippin? asked Aragorn. I think all will be well now, answered Gandalf. He he was not held long, and hobbits have an amazing power of recovery. The memory, or the horror of it, will probably fade quickly. Too quickly, perhaps. Will you, Aragorn, take the Orthanc stone and guard it? It is a dangerous charge. Dangerous indeed, but not to all, said Aragorn. There is one who may claim it by right, for this assuredly is the Palantir of Orthanc from the treasury of Elendil, set there by the kings of Gondor. Now my hour draws near. I will take it. Gandalf looked at Aragorn, and then, to the surprise of the others, he lifted the covered stone and bowed as he presented it. "'Receive it, Lord,' he said. 
in earnest of other things that shall be given back. But if I may counsel you in the use of your own, do not use it yet. Be wary. When have I been hasty or unwary, who have waited and prepared for so many long years, said Aragorn. Never yet. Do not then stumble at the end of the road, answered Gandalf. But at the least, keep this thing secret. You and all others that stand here. The hobbit peregrine, above all, should not, should not know where it is bestowed. The evil fit may come on him again. Excuse me. For alas, he has handled it and looked in it, and should never, and as should never have happened. He ought never to have touched it in Isengard, and there I should have been quicker. But my mind was bent on Saruman, and I did not at once guess the nature of the stone. Then I was weary, and as I lay pondering it, sleep overcame me. Now I know. Yes, there can be no doubt, said Aragorn. At least we know the link between Isengard and Mordor, and how it worked. Much is explained. Strange powers have our enemies, and strange weaknesses, said Theoden. But it has long been said, Oft evil will shall evil mar. Oft evil will shall evil mar. The desire to do evil will corrupt and, and tear down the evil itself. Yes, Theoden here encapsulating absolutely one of the themes of The Lord of the Rings. This is one of those great Aragorn moments that we get all too infrequently, I think. This is one of these beautiful moments. This is like the passing of the Argonoth, right? This is like those, like the moment back in Rivendell where, uh, where Frodo beholds Aragorn in his, his kingly splendor for the first time and sees not Strider, but Aragorn, son of Arathorn, heir of Isildur, you know, heir of the reunited kingdom, king of the reunited kingdom even. Because Gandalf is is having this fairly kind of low key conversation with with uh, with Aragorn here. Uh, will you, Aragorn, take the Orthanc stone and guard it? It's a dangerous charge, dangerous indeed, but not to all," said Aragorn. And then you can imagine him like squaring his shoulders and straightening up and kind of looking to the distance with with destiny in his eyes. There is one who may claim it by right, for this assuredly is the Palantir of Orthanc from the treasury of Elendil, set here by the kings of Gondor. Now my hour draws near. I will take it. Okay, cool. Uh, cool? Are you okay? You doing fine? You're, you're just, you seem to have slipped into like a higher register there. You're, you're doing oratory now, Aragorn, and we weren't really expecting oratory, but you're fine, and Aragorn certainly seems to be fine. Indeed, when Gandalf kind of, okay, this is the moment. This is fine. I mean, you actually are the king. This isn't This isn't arrogance. This isn't pride that is happening here. You actually are the king. This is great to see you uncloaked as I myself now. I'm so often uncloaked, thinks Gandalf. Ar- Gandalf looks at Aragorn and then to the surprise of the others, he lifted the covered stone and bowed as he presented it. Receive it, Lord, he said. Receive it, Lord. He's, he's paying due homage to, to Aragorn here in earnest of other things that shall be given back. But if I may counsel you in the use of your own, yes, This is yours. It does belong to you. Here you are. But if I can just give you some advice about the use of this possession that you now have, this thing that absolutely does belong to you, do not use it yet. Be wary. And Aragorn, who has so often yielded to the good counsel of Gandalf, who has so often sought the good counsel of Gandalf, and when Gandalf was absent, lamented the absence of that good counsel of Gandalf, now responds not with wisdom, not even with with gentleness, but with a, a stern rebuke. When have I been hasty or unwary who have waited and prepared for so many long years, said Aragorn. Never yet, says Gandalf, backing down in front of the king. No, you're right. Aragorn, your hour is coming. It is drawing closer and closer and closer. And as it does, you become more the king. You are more the person you were always supposed to be. I absolutely love it. I think it's a really great, uh, a really great moment here. Um, 
Oh, uh, Lily says there are so many alarm bells in Aragorn's speech here, but also not because of who he is, right? Anyone else having this conversation? Yes, that would be really bad. You're absolutely right, though, Lily. That, that's a really interesting pull, right? Uh, for this assuredly is the Palantir of Orthanc from the treasury of Elendil set here by the kings of Gondor. Now my hour draws near. I will take it. This is mine. You're absolutely right, Gandalf. This was taken here by Elendil himself, placed in Orthanc by Elendil himself. This belongs to me. It is mine by right. It's my birthday present. It's my precious. You're absolutely right, Lily, that we have seen a pattern like this before. But I think Gandalf's action here choose us to separate this kind of, of appropriation of things which do not belong to people, are, are not the rightful possession of people, the ring, Pippin taking the Palantir, these kinds of things, and the yielding up of those things which are actually, despite being incredibly powerful magical artifacts, do actually belong to these individuals, are actually the rightful possession of these individuals. This is Aragorn's. It does belong to him. It is actually his right in a way that it never was Pippin's, in a way that it never was Saruman's even, even as he is, uh, even as he is uh, occupying Orthanc there. Um, let me see here. Gosh, lots of chat tonight in, in the Crowdcast chat. Um, oh, this is very good. Uh, Heroes and Bard says, I like that Gandalf the White and Aragorn are equals more than Gandalf the Grey and Strider could ever be for all that they were dear friends. I wouldn't even say equals. I think their relationship has has flipped. Gandalf backs down here. When has Gandalf ever backed down? When has he ever stepped back from this kind of conflict? Aragorn says, yo, that is mine, hand it over. Yes, actually, Gandalf, there is one such who can wield it. It's me, hand it over. And Gandalf's like, here it is, Lord. Receive it, Lord, in earnest of other things that shall be given back. The formal language here, in earnest of other things that shall be given back. But if I may counsel you in the use of your own, Gandalf is not being in any way Gandalfian about this. He's actually just honoring his king, which is in its way, I mean, not in its way, is in its way surprising, but is not in its way, is just objectively, I think, a really powerful and beautiful and moving moment. And then when Aragorn responds, when have I been hasty or unwary who have waited and prepared for so many long years? Never yet, says Gandalf. Okay, conceded. Do not then stumble at the end of the road. You're right. You're absolutely right. But... Let's be wise. Let's be wise in our use of the Palantir. But at the least, keep this thing secret. You and all others that stand here. Notice how he kind of turns not just Aragorn, but hey, everybody, everybody, including Aragorn parenthetically, everybody, let's keep this thing secret. The hobbit peregrine above all should not know where it is bestowed. The evil fit may come on him again, for alas, he has handled it and looked in it and, and as as should never have happened. He ought never to have touched it in Isengard, and there I should have been quicker. So it is true that Gandalf exhausted here, like an interesting beat that we didn't get at the end of the last chapter. Gandalf was exhausted after his conflict with Saruman. It did take uh, an expenditure of power from Gandalf to, to defeat Saruman there, to drive Saruman back from the, 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 the rail, from the balcony there at Orthanc. He did expend his power and was too tired to figure out what the Palantir was. And this then is where we end up. So the Nazgul flies over in the night, um, <laughs> Nikki says Aragorn shakes the Palantir saying will I use you in the near future it responds try again yes the Palantir as the magic eight ball is um is, is a very good kind of, of yeah comedic conceit I'm, I'm I'm rather fond of that yes it's very good Jenna asks when has he bowed to anyone right when has Gandalf bowed to anyone when has this ever happened did he bow to Elrond 
I don't even think he bowed to Elrond. It's, it's, yes, it's very rare anyway, right? If Gandalf has ever bowed to someone, it has been very, very rare. Yes. Good, good. Um, uh, the Sith will rise again, I think is the full title here. The Sith will rise A here in the Crowdcast chat. I think Gandalf is stepping back to see how Aragorn will act. However, I have no doubt if he got out of line, Gandalf would have been as scary as ever. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, I have, I have no doubt of that too. Open question though. Could Gandalf have taken the Palantir from Aragorn had he wanted to? Could he have claimed it from its rightful owner? Mm, maybe, but not without great cost. I'm sure of that. I mean, not without utterly ruinous and destructive cost, right? If Gandalf has to step up to take the Palantir from Aragorn, forget it. War's over. Like, like that's it. The last hope of mankind, the last hope of the, of the free peoples of Middle-earth is done anyway. So it really doesn't matter what happens at that point. But yes, that's a, it's a very interesting question. Um, Heroes and Bard says he would totally bow to Gladriel. Yes, Gladriel, I absolutely believe Gandalf would bow to. Uh, possibly Elrond in, like, courtesy. I could see that happening. I could see, yes, okay. Maybe Gwaihir. I could see him bowing to the King of the Eagles, perhaps. Gosh, there are very few people. There are very few people, right? Um, and remember even how he was talking to Theoden back in the, the hall at, uh, at Edoras there. Good. Okay, let me catch up. Um, um <laughs> the crowdcast chat is just it's it's fitfully scrolling is the problem i'm just not quite getting this oh hadrian asks tom bombadil um no i don't think a bow would be appropriate to tom bombadil and i think that tom bombadil would laugh at him if he tried it that that would certainly be my read of that relationship but but yes he would certainly i think show a kind of respect to tom bombadil yeah good Good. Okay. Let's, uh, let's move on then. We, we get the Nazgul flying over in the dead of night, of course, but then we get the departure of Gandalf and Pippin and we get our little rhyme of lore here, as Gandalf will call it. Tall ships and tall kings, three times three. What brought them from the foundered land over the flowing sea? Seven stars and seven stones and one white tree. What are you saying, Gandalf? asked Pippin. I was just running over some of the rhymes of lore in my mind, answered the wizard. Hobbits, I suppose, have forgotten them, even those that they ever knew. No, not all, said Pippin, and we have many of our own which wouldn't interest you, perhaps. But I've never heard this one. What is it about, the seven stars and seven stones? About the palantiri of the kings of old, said Gandalf. And what are they? The name means that which looks far away. The Orthanc stone was one. Then it was not made. Not made, Pippin hesitated. By the enemy? No, said Gandalf. Nor by Saruman. It is beyond his art and beyond Sauron's too. The Palantiri came from beyond Westerness, from Eldamar. The Noldor made them. Feanor himself maybe wrote them in days so long ago that time cannot be measured in years. But there is nothing that Sauron cannot turn to evil uses. Alas, for Saruman, it was his downfall, as I now perceive. Perilous to us all are the devices of an art deeper than we possess ourselves. Yet we must bear the blame. Yet he, excuse me, must bear the blame. Fool to keep it secret for his own profit. No word did he ever speak of it to any of the council. We had not yet given thought to the fate of the Palantiri of Gondor and its ruinous wars. By men they were almost forgotten. Even in Gondor they were a secret known only to a few. In Arnor they were remembered only in a rhyme of lore among the Dúnedain. So... First off, and perhaps most importantly, Gandalf now credits the Palantir of Orthanc with the ultimate corruption of Saruman. That Saruman taking over Orthanc was perhaps well-intentioned, but finding the Palantir and falling under its thrall, falling under its, its influence, falling under the shadow that spreads from Barad-dûr through the connection between the Palantir to Orthanc itself, this 
is the root of Saruman's corruption. This is the root of Saruman's ultimate betrayal, that he was just not wise enough. Perilous, uh, perilous to us all are the devices of an art deeper than we possess ourselves, yet he must bear the blame fool to keep it secret for his own profit. So there was a selfishness there from Saruman, Gandalf is suggesting here, Gandalf is, is uh, inferring here. There was a selfishness from Saruman and a desire for power, but the Palantir itself was still dangerous. I love very much the rhyme of lore here. And it's interesting that we get the rhyme of lore at this point when it feels so familiar after Treebeard's, you know, Entish list, the, the accounting of all the creatures and, and peoples of Middle-earth that we got from Treebeard previously. Tall ships and tall kings, three times three. What brought, the, what brought they from the founded land over the flowing sea? Seven stars and seven stones and one white tree. This is an accounting of the fleeing of Numenor. So... King Arpharazon on Numenor during the Golden Age of Numenor decides that what he wants is immortality and he is lied to by Sauron, who is at that point in a relatively fair guise. Sauron comes to him and says, hey, hey, isn't it weird that the elves live in Valinor and they're super immortal and you're not? Isn't that terrible? I mean, sure, you live a good long time because you Numenorians, wow, you stick around, but immortality would be pretty sweet, wouldn't it? You should definitely go and take that. I think it's your right. I think it's your right. I think you should go and take it from Valinor. So Arpharazon mounts this enormous naval expedition to Valinor. He crosses the Great Western Sea from Numenor, which, which lay between Valinor and Middle-earth at the time, this, this Atlantis-like continent where the Numenorians came from, the, the greatest race of men. So he sets sail in this navy across the ocean toward Valinor, and the people of Valinor say, um this is really bad. We are going to be utterly destroyed. This is going to be a big, big problem. Something has to be done. So they appeal to Iluvatar, who cracks the earth, who removes at that time Valinor and the West, the undying lands. He removes them from Arda. He takes them off of the globe. Now, if you sail west from Middle-earth, you just come back around to the east again. Now the world is a globe as it never was before. And to travel to the Undying Lands, you have to take the straight road. You have to travel specifically into ferry. It's not just a voyage across the ocean. It's a voyage into ferry, into another realm. As a consequence of cracking the earth, or perhaps cracking the earth as a consequence of, of his primary purpose, Iluvatar sinks Numenor. Numenor sinks below the waves. And of all of those fine people, of all of those fair folk, of that glittering civilization, only nine ships escape. Nine ships venture forth from Numenor to Middle-earth, carrying Elendil and Isildur and the, the scions of the race of Numenorians here on, on Middle-earth itself. Tall ships and tall kings, recites Gandalf. Three times three, these are the nine ships, the nine ships that sail forth from Numenor. What brought they from the foundered land over the flowing sea? Seven stars and seven stones and one white tree. So the seven stones here are the Palantiri, presumably. These are the, certainly Gandalf is, is drawing that connection there. Uh, what is it about the seven stars and seven stones? About the Palantiri of the kings of old, says Gandalf. Oh, okay. So there are seven Palantiri, and he's going to give us a brief account in just a moment of, of where those Palantiri went. And we get seven stars. Seven stars already uh, an element in um, the heraldry of Numenor at this point. And of course, this will be, um, let, me, let me actually put up the slide that I have here for you. 
Seven stars. This, of course, is the White Tree of Gondor, and a lot of this poem connects back to the White Tree of Gondor. Here you can see the seven stars of Gondor topped with the crown above the White Tree. The seven stars is a very common kind of uh, graphical motif throughout Arda. It's used throughout Numenor. It's used for the elves. It refers to a uh, to the constellation, to the Wane uh, that, that that turns through the northern skies, uh, and it is it is remarked upon by the elves. It is. It is significant and sacred to the elves. It's significant and sacred to the dwarves. Remember the seven stars above Durin's head as he peered into the mirror mirror, right? These are the same seven stars and these are the seven stars that have been taken. This is not the, the, the Numenorean emblem here. This is the, the emblem of Gondor itself. And the other element here, the white tree is also significant. You know, uh, seven stars, here are the stars, seven stones, the palantiri and the white tree. The white tree is the sapling grown by Isildur from the fruit that he stole from the white tree Nimloth which grew in Armen- Ar- Armenelos in Numenor, uh, which was itself a seedling spawned of Celeborn, the white tree of Tol Arisea, which was in turn descended from Galathilion, the white tree of Tyrion, made by Yavanna in the image of Telperion, the original white tree of Valinor, all of which is to say that the white tree is perhaps the most powerful artifact of, symbol of, metaphor for, fairy, that we have in all of Middle-earth. There are other artifacts. The rings kind of speak to to, to Valinor and to that history and that tradition, certainly. And the Palantiri certainly do. I mean, explicitly do. But the tree is different. The tree is the oldest of these symbols. It is descended from the tree that was remade in the image of Telperion by Yavanna. You know, the child of that tree had the child that, that was uh, that was planted in Numenor. And then when Sauron comes to Numenor and, and demands that the tree be chopped down, the previous night Isildur has stolen a fruit from that tree, which he then nurses into a sapling that he carries with him on the nine ships racing from Numenor to Middle-earth. So that is is uh, the the symbolism that we're getting here from Gandalf's little uh, little poem here. Let me catch up with the chat again. Um, Jenna says, I love the punchiness of one white tree. Yes, it's it's extremely good. It's extremely good. Good. Um, <laughs> and Hadrian's calling out, Gandalf, you're wearing a ring of power, you hypocrite. That's a very good pull there, right? Yes, Gandalf is still wearing one of the rings of power. But of course, the three Alvin rings never corrupted. There's nothing about... That, well, okay, no, see, even there again, there's nothing about the elven rings that corrupts the individual, of course. Uh, let's all think of Galadriel and the influence that she had over Lothlorien, uh, an influence that is explicitly tied to the star upon her finger, to Nenya, the ring of water, and to her her artificial, her unnatural preservation of Lothlorien. Yeah, it's power. It's all power and power corrupts. The more power you have, the more power you want, the more power you want, the more readily you are corrupted by both the desire for and the actuality of power. Yeah, that's that's a very fair point. That's a very fair point. Um, Shane says, history tip, never call yourself the golden or enlightened one, Arpharazon. Very fair, right? By the time that you're slipping that into your, your formal name, you've, you've left the path of wisdom, I think it's fair to say, as, as Gandalf would say. Yes, good. Um, Okay, let me see here. Uh, so much in the chat. You guys are so chatty tonight. I absolutely love it. This is wonderful. Um, uh, Angela asks, so Gandalf still has the ring even after his resurrection? You know what? Interesting and unanswered question. We don't know to what degree Gandalf's death and resurrection was metaphorical and to what degree it was literal and practical. He says he was sent back naked, which suggests... 
I was sent back naked. But he clearly still has some of his possessions, right? He clearly still has some of his artifacts. So I just don't know if that's, I don't know quite how to interpret that. Yeah, I cannot believe it's 10 after 10. I cannot believe that, that I'm, I'm, I still have two slides to go, you guys. I thought I was going to finish this up so early tonight and we were going to have a long time for Q&A, but I guess we're not. Here we go, moving into a, what are the Palantiri for, asks Pippin. What did the men of old use them for, asked Pippin, delighted, uh, delighted, astonished at getting answers to so many questions and wondering how long it would last. To see far off and to converse in thought with one another, said Gandalf. In that way, they long guarded and united the realm of Gondor. They set up stones at Minas Arnor and at Minas Ithil in Orthanc in the Ring of Isengard. The chief and master of these was under the Dome of Stars at at Osgiliath before its ruin. The three others were far away in the north. In the house of Elrond, it is told they were at Numinous, at Amonsor, and Elendil's stone was at the Tower Hills that looked toward Mithlond and the Gulf of Loon where the grey ships lie. Each palantir replied to each, but all those in Gondor were ever open to the view of Osgiliath. Now it appears that, as the rock of Orthanc has withstood the storms of time, so there the palantir of that tower has remained. But alone it would do nothing to see small images of things far off and days remote. Very useful, no doubt that was to Saruman, yet it seems that he was not content. Further and further abroad he gazed, until he cast his gaze upon Barad-dûr and was caught. Who knows where the lost stones of Arnor and Gondor now lie, buried or drowned deep, but one at least Sauron must have obtained and mastered to his purposes. I guess that it was the Ithil stone, for he took Minas Ithil long ago and turned it into an evil place. Minas Morgul it has become. Easy it is now to guess how quickly the roving eye of Saruman was trapped and held, and how ever since he has been persuaded from afar, and daunted when persuasion would not serve, the biter bit, the hawk under the eagle's foot, the spider in a steel web. How long, I wonder, has he he been constrained to come often to his glass for inspection and instruction, and the Orthanc stone so bent toward Barador any save a will of adamant now looks into it, it will bear his mind and sight swiftly lither, and how it draws one to itself. Have I not felt it? Even now my heart desires to test my will upon it, to see if I could not wrench it from him and turn it where I would, to look across the wide seas of water and of time to Tyrion the fair, and perceive the unimaginable hand and mind of Feanor at their work, while both the white tree and the golden were in flower. He sighed and fell silent. Even Gandalf is tempted by the Palantir, and not just by the Palantir, he is tempted to try to take the Palantir back by force of will from Sauron. It has been corrupted. It has been turned now so often to Barador that that's where it goes. Just Saruman set a new homepage in his browser and it's barador.com. Oh my goodness, it has just occurred to me that there probably is a barador.com. I'm definitely not going to look that up and I urge none of you to look it up because I can't guarantee the safety of that website, but there's almost certainly a barador.com. But that's Saruman's homepage, right? That's what he leaves open on the Palantir so that he can get his, his updates and his instructions. And it is so forceful, so complete that it has pulled Pippin into it too, that, that even Pippin's very minor will was tugged and pulled all the way to Barador and the influence of Sauron. Nikki is saying, now I have to look it up. I'm sorry in advance for this, Nikki. I just, yeah, I hope it's all okay. I hope it's all okay. Very Khan says, my wife has a will of adamant. A will of adamant is very, very good. Oh, it's a consulting website, says Shane. It's disappointing. That's really disappointing. Um, do you want to hire Barador Consulting? 
I mean, maybe, maybe actually a little bit, but yes, yes. Okay, huh, weird. And it's called the Dark Tower Session. <laughs> okay, I'm definitely looking this up afterward. They're going to see a lot of traffic tonight. They're going to see an unprecedented amount of traffic tonight, and they're going to wonder where the hell it's all come from. So, you know, if you interact with the fine folks at Baradur.com, I urge you to be very nice and polite. Um, so this is the accounting of what the Palantir actually does. And you'll note one very important note here. To see far off, says Gandalf, and to converse in thought with one another. To converse in thought, not to share their thoughts or to converse, but to communicate telepathically. It isn't just, it isn't just a scrying stone. It isn't just a, a FaceTime connection via iPhone. It is something far more intimate and powerful than that. And of course, the intimate and powerful connection with Sauron is never good. Okay, let's wrap up our discussion tonight with, uh, with our last slide. Where are we going? I thought you were going to stop at Helm's Deep, said Pippin. Where are you going then? To Minas Tirith, before the seas of war surround it. Oh, and how far is that? Leagues upon leagues, answered Gandalf. Thrice as far as the dwellings of King Theoden, and they are more than a hundred miles east from here, as the messengers of Mordor fly. Shadowfax must run a longer road, which will prove the swifter. We shall ride now until daybreak, and that is still some hours away. Then even Shadowfax must rest in some hollow of the hills at Edoras, I hope. Sleep, if you can. You may see the first glimmer of dawn upon the golden roof of the house of Aeor, and in three days thence you shall see the purple shadow of Mount Mindoluin and the walls of the Tower of Denethor white in the morning. Away now, Shadowfax! Run, Greatheart! Run as you have never run before! Now we are come to the lands where you were fold and every stone you know. Run now! Hope is in speed! Shadowfax tossed his head and cried aloud as if a trumpet had summoned him to battle. Then he sprang forward. Fire flew from his feet. Night rushed over him. As he fell slowly into sleep, Pippin had a strange feeling. He and Gandalf were still as stone, seated upon the statue of a running horse, while the world rolled away beneath his feet with a great noise of wind. And so ends Book 3 of The Lord of the Rings. So ends the first half of The Two Towers, and we are going to pivot next time to our discussion of Frodo and Sam. Meanwhile, with Frodo and Sam, we're going to catch up with what they have been doing during this period. Basically, the two halves of this book happen at the same time. So we're going to jump back in time. I think we pick up three days after their parting at Parthgallon, which would be about the time that uh, that Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas are running into Aramir for the first time. You know, that that's roughly the, the, the timeline that's happening here. So we're going to switch our focus to Frodo and to Sam, and of course, to Gollum. But let's talk about book three a little bit. In fact, let me take a look and see if I have any. Let me cancel this slide, too. Hello, everyone. Let me uh, take a look and see if we have any questions. Um, Galadriel is asking a Crowdcast chat question. How do, you, how do you do names in the chat? Just capitalize them or something else? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, Crowdcast doesn't offer a little at uh, functionality yet. So I'm hoping that they'll add it. But for right now, the convention is in the chat. Everyone types each other's names in all caps, just so you can catch the attention of whoever it is that you are addressing. I love that. Uh, Angela asks, did Pippin see Sauron? If he did, what did he see? Does Sauron have some kind of form? Is the eye just a representation in the movies? Yes, Sauron has some kind of shadowy form. Let me go back and we'll actually take a look because it is... Um it is right there on the slide. Let's let's see what the text tells us, and we can um, we can get a better sense here. Um, good. Okay. Let me see. Uh, let's uh, now. I need to share this again. Here we are. Okay. So this is the slide itself, 
And this is the account. Um, one began to fly straight toward me talking about the Nazgul, of course, getting bigger and bigger. It had a horrible no-no, I cannot say. I tried to get away because I thought it would fly out, but when it had covered all the globe, it disappeared. Then he came. He did not speak so that I could hear words. He just looked and I understood. So, yes, I think a close reading of the text suggests that actually, yes, Pippin had a vision of Sauron, a shadow of Sauron, some kind of physical indication of Sauron. We know it was a physical indication because of two things. He did not speak so that I could hear words. He, I could tell that he wasn't speaking. I could just hear his voice. He just looked and I understood. So he was looking at Pippin. There is a physical connection between the two of them. Yes, that does seem to be implied by the text here, Angela. It's a dark thought. It's a, it's a troubling thought, certainly. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll get more opportunity to talk about the physical form of Sauron later, I think. Um, much, much later. Um, let's see where we are here in the chat. Good. Um, Frodo and Sam. Frodo and Sam making questionable decisions, says Jenna Susanna. I hope that there's a tune to which we can sing that, Jenna. I hope that there's a little song that you're writing here to account for, for book four of The Lord of the Rings. Little Frodo and Sam making questionable decisions. Yes, a lot of questionable decisions, but also a lot of heroism and a lot of grace and a lot of goodness and a lot of pity and a lot of, a lot of you know, connection and Frodo and Sam excellence as well. Yes. Oh, Jenna's saying she's going to write this song. Excellent. Good. Send me a link to the, uh, to the YouTube page where we can find that eventually. I hope that you will. Um, yes. Yes, good. Okay, so what I want to talk about a little bit before we wrap up in, in our few remaining moments here is to kind of look at the two big themes of book three of The Lord of the Rings. There are two kind of defining conflicts or or contrasts or, or two tensions here, I think, both of which are, are frequently referred to throughout book three and both of which will kind of be reflected and sometimes inverted by the time that we get into book four. And then, of course, again, when we get into uh, books five and six, The Return of the King here. Those two elements, choice on the one hand, the freedom to choose the necessity of choice, the tyranny of choice, the obligations which we must endure and accept, the the things which drive us to do what must be done. I'm thinking like in particular, there are a myriad, you know, examples of this, but in particular, I'm thinking of Aragorn's choice there at, at Parth Gallon to choose to go after Merry and Pippin rather than to go after Frodo and Sam. As he says, all of his choices have gone awry. You know, he has, he has made ill choices. He is, he is cursed this day because of the choices that he has made, which of course aren't true. I, I don't think that that is true. We celebrate Aragorn's decision to go after Merry and Pippin because it is the kingly decision, because it is the, the, the correct decision, both in terms of his understanding of the world and, and the plan and the, the Aina Lindale, you know, the song of Iluvatar, that, that this is a burden. So say the wise, the, the burden of the ring is for Frodo and Frodo alone to carry. Yeah, I think that there's there's something to that, that, that Aragorn is being receptive to that idea, that is, is he is respecting the role that Frodo has to play in the, the great affairs of Middle-earth, I guess. But there's also this idea that it is kingly, that there is a personal loyalty, that Merry and Pippin, for all that they are irrelevant to the quest of the Fellowship, they are also most in need. They are most small. Frodo is greater than Merry and Pippin in that moment because he is the ring-bearer, because he has been touched by some fate, by some necessity, by some destiny, touched by, you know, he has been called out by name in the Aina Lindale, though, of course, everything is called out by name in the Aina Lindale, but you get my meaning. Merry and Pippin, though, have nothing else. They have no hope. They, they must be rescued by Aragorn, and he owes them that loyalty. And of course, 
look at all of this discussion of choice leads us into the discussion of the other great kind of point of tension or interesting thematic contrast that runs throughout this book, throughout this entire novel, but, but certainly through this, this individual book, catastrophe. Things fall apart. And in the falling apart, they are saved. They are redeemed. They are transformed. They are made bright. They are filled with hope. Look at the calamitous sequence of events that has occurred since... Uh, Carothrus, I suppose. Let's try to cross cross Carothrus. Nope, can't cross Carothrus. Okay, let's go down through Moria. Ooh, Gandalf died. Okay, let's just try going south and we'll make our decision at Parth Gallen. Uh, Frodo, you take an hour by yourself. Ah, Boromir's fallen under the sway of the ring. Orcs have attacked. Frodo and Sam have disappeared. Merry and Pippin have been captured. Okay, all right, let's set out after Merry and Pippin. We don't have Gandalf. We don't have anything. There's only three of us left. It's Aragorn and it's Legolas and Gimli. We're going to set out after Merry and Pippin and hopefully this is going to work out okay. Ah, they're in Fangorn. Okay, they're in Fangorn. Let's go, I, uh, we'll, we'll figure it out. I mean, we'll reunite with Gandalf. Okay, that's good, that's great. Now we're going to head south. Now we're going to head south to Edoras and we're going to meet up with King Theoden and, oh boy, he's in a bad way and the Rohirrim are in a bad way and they lost the battle at the Fords of Isen and now we're going to ride out. Now we're going to ride out and we're going to make good on the battle at the Fords of Isen. No, wait, Saruman has actually marshaled all of his forces against us. We're going to flee to the ancient Numenorean fastness of Helm's Deep and we're going to lose. We're going to lose and everything is going to go terribly. Oh no, wait, Gandalf saved us at the last moment and now we get to ride to Isengard, which has already been taken out by ants. It is calamity after calamity after calamity after calamity. Everything that can go wrong does go wrong. And in the going wrong, goodness finds a foothold. Virtue finds a foothold. Hope finds a foothold. This ties back to some of our very earliest discussions, I suppose, about fate and chance and luck in the pages of The Hobbit. As I said recently, what separates Bilbo is not his luck. I mean, his luck does separate him from the dwarves, at least, and even from other hobbits. He's a a remarkably lucky hobbit, even by the standards of that culture and community. But what really separates Bilbo is that he takes action in the face of luck. He is presented with an opportunity and he takes it. And that is what defines for me book three of The Lord of the Rings. It is this desire to keep fighting, this desire to keep going. Things are hopeless and all is lost, but we keep moving forward. Merry and Pippin have been taken. Frodo and Sam have run off into the night. Boromir is dead. We're done. Like, Gandalf is dead. We are sunk. Okay. Get your shit together. Go do what you've got to do. Just get out after Mary and Pippin. Go find them. Go do the task that is in front of you. And good things will flow from it. Okay, Mary and Pippin have gone into Fangorn and there's no way that we can get to them. All right, let, let's go to Theoden. Oh, Theoden sunk under this under this, this last spell, under this darkness that has been spread from Saruman by Grima Wormtongue. Okay, well, actually, it turns out that that's fine. We can take action. We can, we can stand up. I mean, literally the taking of action there is what restores Theoden King, right? Getting to his feet, the, the coming of the light, the restoration from Gandalf is, is a matter of getting to his feet and going outside. This, this movement, this action that Theoden takes, and of course, also the, the taking up of his sword and then the riding forth. You know, it, it isn't really until Helm's Deep, I guess, that, that Theoden is restored, restored. But he takes action, uh, an action that is in defiance of hopelessness. And that, I suppose, is where we come down uh, in, in our discussion of book three, in large part, our discussion of the Lord of the Rings, our discussion of the Hobbit too. This is one of the great thematic points that the professor is making in this work, that courage is not about fighting when you believe you can win. Courage, honor, 
hope. These things emerge from the desire to, from the, the, the decision to, not, not necessarily the, the latent desire, but the conscious decision to keep fighting even when you will believe that you will lose. And that is, that is what creates the space for the intercessory grace of eucatastrophe. That is what creates the opportunity for goodness to come through the crack into the world. That is, is the, the wellspring of virtue and of new, fresh hope. When things seem hopeless, that is when it is most important to take action. And as I say, this ties back to, you know, the trolls in The Hobbit and Goblin Town, certainly, and, and the spiders of Mirkwood, and absolutely with Smaug too, right? Smaug leaving the Lonely Mountain. Oh, this is terrible. This is a catastrophe. This is literally, a, a, you know, a, a disaster. A natural disaster is about to befall Lake Town, the, the relatively innocent folk of Lake Town, the master excluded. The, this is a natural disaster. But what it really is, is the opportunity to take out Smaug, to, to restore a balance and a new hope to Erebor. This is the repeating pattern that we see throughout, and this is crystallized for me perhaps nowhere as clearly and as precisely and certainly as compellingly as it is right here in book three, in, in the first half of The Two Towers. I love this section of the book and, and love it all the more for this careful reading that we've done. I've enjoyed it all the more for this careful reading that we've done. I am more appreciative of... Of, I think Aragorn in particular, he has really stood out to me during this reading. I've really understood how his kingliness is coming on him, is coming over him now as he is getting closer and closer to that appointed hour of prophecy, as he is becoming more and more the king in exile. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Um, let me see here coming back as I catch up with the chat. Let me see also if there are other questions that have been asked. No, I think we're good. Um, the Sith will rise again says, I guess it's supposed to be our Mars. However, we're proven it may be wrong. About oh, I, I misread that one. That was a different That was a different, uh, that was a different uh, comment that scrolled by as I started reading that one. I do apologize. Um, are we talking about John Carter? That's fantastic. John Carter of Mars is excellent. Uh, excellent pulp sci-fi adventure. Yes. Good, good. Uh, Jenna says, Two Towers may be my favorite book. We'll see how it plays out because I remember just how much I forgot during this reread. Yes. And Angela confirms also, yes, new appreciation for Aragorn. Good. And Nikki confirms where there's a will, there's a way. Oh, and Shane's calling out the, the coming of Faramir. Faramir just around the corner, you guys. Like, like buckle up. We're going to get some really good Faramir in just a little bit. Faramir, as I've said before, I think the most virtuous character, the, the best man in all of Middle-earth. It, it's... Faramir, Aomer, and and uh, Aragorn, I think, kind of competing for that title. But yeah, Faramir is is very, very good. And I'm really looking forward to talking about that. And of course, he has what is probably my favorite speech in the entire book. And I know that I've said that about other speeches too. And of course, my favorites change all the time. But yes, Faramir gets some very, very good lines of dialogue. I love it. Good. Good. And Seastar says, the upcoming portion of The Two Towers is one of my favorite books because Gollum. Yeah, go the Gollum stuff, we're going to have so much to talk about with Gollum. I should say, too, we are going to move a little more slowly through uh, through book four than we did through book three. Book three is, uh, relatively speaking, a lot of action. Book four is a lot of depth. There's, there's a lot of slow movement there that we must pay close attention to. I like that a lot. Yeah, good. All right. Guys, that is going to do it. We are actually at time and it has been a long week of podcasting. So I am going to wrap it up right there. I'm going to wish you all a very Merry Christmas, a very Happy Holidays. I will wish you a Happy Hogmanay. We will all reconvene. Let me show you the slide, in fact, so that I don't get any of these details wrong after I prepared them and wrote them down because, hey, you know what? It's been that kind of broadcast. Let me see here. 
This is our next session. Book four, chapter one, The Taming of Smeagol. 10 p.m. Eastern, Thursday, January the 4th, 2018. So that is two weeks from tonight. We are going to look at chapter one of book four, The Taming of Smeagol. Minor spoilers, you guys. Golem's in this chapter as well as Frodo and Sam. A lot to discuss in that chapter. I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks so much for being with me through 2017. It's been a, a, an absolute blast. We're going to you know, continue into 2018. We're going to pick up the pace. We're going to talk even more about Tolkien and and by the time we're done with 2018 we're going to be into the Silmarillion which is a very exciting prospect so it's going to be a big big year and I hope you'll be with me every step of the way have a great holiday break have a great holiday season I hope that you all enjoy A Christmas Carol that'll be released next week I will talk to you all again in 2018 in the wild future year of 2018 until then you guys take care I'll talk to you all again soon bye